Hey there, JudgeCast listeners. This is Sean Catanese here. I wanted to first off thank you for sticking with us and uh, listening to the show here. I know we've been sort of hit or miss, and it's probably looking like it's going to stay hit or miss for a little while, but nonetheless, thanks for listening. Also, if you get the show or have gotten the show in the past through an RSS feed through mtgcast.com, which is our main host, um, you will need to reset that because they've been hacked. Now, this also goes for any other magic-related podcast you get through MTGCast. Um, all of them have been reset. So just keep that in mind. With no further ado, here's today's show. Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is your host, Sean Catanese, Level 2 Judge from California. And Jose Boveda, level one judge, also from California. I swear I am. Okay. I know that voice. It's a voice I heard in California a whole lot. In fact, it would never shut up. It's me, your friend, Jose. You just don't recognize my voice because we have not done JudgeCast in a long time. (laughs) What you're saying is true, but I still don't believe you. Why is this? Hmm. Wait, you're Ricky, right? That's true. Okay. Well, that's that's more true than saying it's your Jose. So, um, hello. This hey, is Ricky, Ricky Hayashi, level and three judge from Virginia. You you're now a you you have been and you are a Star City Games event specialist. You do the StarCityGames.com open weekends, that sort of thing, all around the country. So people think they know who you are. That's probably how they think they know. I still get lots of people coming up to me at events and saying, we love JudgeCast. When are you going to be back on? So the answer is right now. Well, that's pretty prompt of you. I am on JudgeCast right now. I don't remember what JudgeCast is, though. Can you explain this concept to me? JudgeCast is a podcast about Magic the Gathering, specifically from the judge's perspective. Um, we talk about things that have changed in the game from week to week or month to month, depending on how often we record. So we also talk about um, what's been going on in the world of judging. That includes things like term organizing, uh, community organizing, um, basically how judges serve their communities and help this game that we all love grow and expand. Um, and we also talk about the rules because that's really what judges are there 99% of the time doing um, is helping players understand the rules and understand how to play the game properly. So um, we'll answer listener questions and um, hopefully we'll inspire a couple of you to become judges and hopefully we'll also be able to help you play with, uh, you know, the right rules. Anything else you want to add to that, Ricky? Well... I saw Green Lantern last night, and it was very disappointing. If Jose were here, he would launch, <laughs> help help me launch this tangent on Green Lantern. It, it, right, and it would turn into Green Banter, and then it would just ooh, be a good yeah. one. Yeah, an Thank excellent you. pun. Yeah, so more banter back and forth. Yeah, there's not going to be as much of that because I'm the serious one and you're the not serious one. And when we have a third person who's also not serious, then I'm outvoted. But at this point, you know. Okay, but speaking of puns. 
okay. that's re- related to Magic the Gathering card tournaments. Mm-hmm. When when the Star City Games opens, when we do our opening announcements, we tell players to keep their food and drink off the table. Yes. And then we have a food or drink related pun. Yes. Now my 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 best one to date was probably we would hate to see Tabernacle of Ginger Ale. We'd hate to see your force of wills turned into force of spills. That was um, Nicholas Saban. He unveiled that in Memphis in right, March. Right. Or um you know, for the standard events, because you have a standard and a legacy, for the standard events it would be something like, um, you know, please don't let your Tezzerant agent of Bolas turn into a Tezzerant agent of Colas. Yes. Okay. So do you have a new one for us? So we had the Star City Games Invitational for the first half of the year in Indianapolis earlier this month. The big stage. Yes, the big stage. We had uh, like 150 of our top grinders, you know, all the people who had qualified for the Invitational. So they are very familiar with the way we run tournaments and they're familiar with our puns. Right, they've heard of them all. You need to wow them with something new. Right. So for the Invitational, I had... Please keep your food and drink off the table. We would hate for your Lawan Cephalid Empress to become damaged. <laughs> and exactly, see? Shall we move on to talking about what's changed recently in the world of judging? Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> I'm I'm certain of it. Okay. Absolutely. Nothing happened on June 20th. Right, nothing at all. <laughs> okay, um, no, you're wrong, um, but that's okay, because that happens often. Um, no, not that often. So, a new infraction procedure guidelines document was oh, published. Oh, you're going to talk about that first? Yeah, let's talk about that first. I mean, that's all, what matters most to judges, right? Yeah, but all anyone wants to talk about is the banned and restricted announcement. Okay, let's go into that real quick. Um, Jace the Mind Sculptor, blah. Better than all. Right. Um, and also Ooh, Stoneforge it, Mystic, also banned. So not in standard. Cannot play those two cards in standard. Unless... Oh, yes. Th- this is my favorite part. It just it completely blew my mind because we all wondered... We all thought Stoneforge was too powerful and needed to be banned, but they had put two of them, two copies of the card, into the War of Attrition event deck, which is, I think, right on the packaging. It says, you can play this deck at Friday Night Magic. Right, it does, yeah. So that was going to cause all kinds of marketing problems if kids bought this, not even just kids, just people bought this event deck, took it to Friday Night Magic, and then, you know, judges have to game-loss them, or, or at least, probably since it's FNM, just make them replace Stoneforges with basic lands. Like, mm-hmm. that, would, that would have been a travesty of marketing if yeah. people bought decks and then were told that you can't play with this card. Right, so the workaround is actually extremely clunky in my view, but it's a workaround. It's um, clunky, but... Awesome. 
Right. And that is that you can play Stoneforge Mystic at your FNM. You can play your Stoneforge Mystic at a Grand Prix. You can play at, it at Grand Prix Pittsburgh. Right. You can do it. You can do it if you really, really want to because you'd have to play the War of Attrition deck as package. Yeah. No cha- No substitutions at all. Right. Same sideboard, same 60 cards in the main deck. Um, that has to be your deck list. Which is going to lead to a new meme in, in the magic community of the event deck challenge. Like, <laughs> legitimately good players, I, I believe, are going to show up at random tournaments with the event deck just to see how they can do. Well, I mean, I can see, like, if you could... If you could modify the deck somehow, I, I, that makes sense, but I don't know. I think I would really... Uh, there's so many players that don't like having that decision made for them. Like, I realized that a lot of players had the decision to play Codblade made for them by the fact that Codblade was doing well. However, I think that there's a difference between somebody saying, well, I'll play Codblade and maybe I'll make it a little different than what I saw here. I won't make it a carbon copy of this deck as opposed to just cracking open a deck and saying, okay, this is what I'm playing. I I feel like people would probably have a hard time doing that because you can't really put any of your personal flair or flavor or anything like that into the actual deck. I mean, granted, if you somehow... Actually, that would be a very funny thing to see, is somebody brings an all-foil version of the event deck to an event. Just to trick people. Well, because they so that when they go turn two stone forwards, they're like, "That's not the event deck; it's foil." Right, <laughs> judge. <laughs> right, or or get them all all like signed or altered, or use like old versions. Of, are, are there any reprints in there, like from like old frame cards? Yeah, I doubt it. Lean and Sky Hunter. You could play with like Mirrodin versions of those. Um, so you go turn two Mirrodin, Lean and Sky Hunter. Or 8th eighth, eighth edition, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still got the new frame, but it would be like a white-bordered version. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you could use, like, Guru Lands for the planes. That would be... That would kind of... Kind of oh, Arrest! Arrest is in the sideboard. That's like a card from one of the early bad sets. Wasn't it like Apocalypse or something? Mercadian Masks there we go. and Mirrodin. Original Mirrodin. Yeah, so you could like play with Mercadian Masks versions of Arrest or something in there just to really mess with somebody. Yeah, that's a terrible no, uh, idea. No, people are going to do this because they like to do silly things. I mean, it will be a skill test, I suppose. But Two, two people in a Star City Games Legacy Open played Battle of Wits. And they they didn't do it because they thought they could legitimately win with it, right? Although one of one of them played in a video feature match, and it is now probably right up there with the the lightning helix <laughs> as one of the great moments of Magic video history. Well, did you know, did you see it? No, I didn't see it. You've heard about it. Well, he okay. Here's what happened. He's on, Kenny's on the video feature match. His opponent is playing Show and Tell, which is the blue and two sorcery. Each player can put a permanent onto the battlefield. It might not be permanent. It might be the whole, like, non-Planeswalker, old permanent definition. Sure. 
Um, and, and the point of the deck is usually to throw an Emmer cooldown, you know, for three mana. Be like, haha, what are you going to do? I untap and annihilate you. Right. Well, he didn't get a chance to annihilate with his Emmer cool because, because <laughs> Kenny put a battle of wits down and then the Emmer cool show and tell guy had to pass the turn and he's like, trigger? hundred cards or 200 cards. Yeah. (laughs) And it was on the video feature match. I think, yeah, it was Gerard Faviano was in the booth and he is already kind of a, a fun, excitable guy. And he just went ballistic and the rest of the room was like, what, what's going on? And then the story spread, you know, throughout the room, you know, show and tell battle. It's like, Oh my God. And if I can find the link to it, of course. I'll yes. In the show notes. Okay. Let's let's talk about Commander. Uh, Commander. Yeah. Um, in fact, I got all of them in Japanese. Did you? Oh. Oh, I. I really want. I, I think I might have to buy them. I have to find them somewhere. Yeah. How did How did you get that? That's uh, the End Game, the store that I organized for. You know. There you go. They so ordered- that. That is why people should become judges and. Become judges for stores because the stores will be appreciative and get you stuff. Yeah, I mean, I had some sealed product and they were going to be ordering some of that sealed product. And so I said, well, why don't I just give you this? And then when the commander decks come out, you can give me those and we can work out a trade or something. They were amenable to it. Um, So, yeah, so I got all five of the commander decks in Japanese. And now, (laughs) um, because my wife is now interested in commander, I have to actually trade away a couple of them for English versions. But even the English ones are are already like sold out everywhere and are, you know, plus 25 to 50% over retail, suggested retail price. The thing is, that's with the first wave of the product coming out. The Commander decks are not like um, From the Vault Legends Mm. or From the Vault whatever. They're not like the From the Vault sets. They are going to be for sale at the mass market stores. This is a set that they want to be available to players. So there's definitely interest in the set, but also I know there's going to be more coming down the pipe. So I think paying more than retail on this is probably probably a bad idea unless you really want it right away. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, I kept missing my chance to order them, and then it went up to like $50 instead of 35 I was like, uh, I guess I'm not going to do it anymore. And then Andy Hecht announced that um, level three plus judges would be getting, I don't think we're getting all five. I think we're getting three of the five wow. decks. That's pretty sexy. Yeah, as a thank you. But the best part of this story is that some high-level judges have started to get their sets, their commander decks from Wizards, the thank you. And the shipping labels have been misprinted. Oh. Kevin, Kevin Binswanger, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Level three bi- down in Texas. Binzy, Mr. Bangswanger, mm-hmm. Texas, Kevin. Yes. Okay. Yeah. He comes on IRC and says, hey, I just got my commander decks, but they were addressed to Johanna Binswanger. <laughs> Johanna is Johanna Virtanen, level three judge, <laughs> regional coordinator from Finland. 
So and we're like, like, somebody like what? And then Sheldon, <laughs> Sheldon Mennery of you know EDH slash Commander Fame comes on and says, "I just got my Commander decks, and they were addressed to Brian Mennery." <laughs> so it sounds like they like somebody had a probably all their addresses in an Excel spreadsheet somewhere, and they they probably did some sort of a merge improperly where they're like off by one cell as they go down so, the list. Yeah, now we're all patiently awaiting like what what's it's very exciting game. Right. I, I'm hoping to get Jurgen Hayashi. <laughs> very nice. Very and nice, there were nice. some other amusing uh, mashups, I guess. Uh-huh. That were suggested. I, I, yeah. Wow, that's uh, although you know, um, yeah, well, that's 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 really funny. Wow. Well, you know, that's that's the level three judges getting something that cool. That's uh, that's pretty awesome of Wizards to send them out. You know, level threes put so much into the program. It is. Um, it's very nice, and they they just announced on Judge List as well. Mm-hmm. Hey, did you get this, Eric Sorensen? Yeah. July Judge mailing. Mm-hmm. says uh, Wizards of the Coast we decided to send every judge an exclusive new judge promo our current plan is to have them shipped by the end of July right they made that decision at the judge conference in April at Wizards office um, and I think that's that's really cool because you know there's so many judges that are level one or or even level two and they may not really have a chance or have the opportunity or or take advantage of the opportunity to go to a Grand Prix, a Pro Tour, um, their Nationals. You know, there's only so many of those events. And those are the places where you get the judge foils. Um, and so this is a, a really great way, I think, to, you know, show some appreciation uh, to the folks that are really the people driving the program they really deserve this, so it's it's great to see. Do you think this will be the Mana Crypt? I am hoping. You hoping saw you you, you saw that right? Yes, it's such a sexy card. The right, I think, right around when GP Providence was going on, there was a picture spoiled on like Facebook and MTG Salvation of a foil promo Mana Crypt with alternate art. Right. And you know, everyone was like, oh, it's, that's the new Judge Foil. Some, some people thought they got him in Providence. They didn't. So I was really excited to go to Pro Tour Nagoya mm-hmm. next uh, two weeks after that. I'd be like, oh, I'm getting my Mana Crypts. All of the dealers in Nagoya on their buy list had Judge Mana Crypt written on there with some price. I don't remember the price. We get our packets, and the new foil is Goblin Welder. And we're like, right. where's the Mana Crypts? <laughs> Well, and that's also a little strange because don't Pro Tours, haven't they traditionally given out two new foils at each of the Pro Tours? Yeah, but they messed up the the whole two new foils thing because we got we got sort of Fire and Ice earlier kind of as a bonus. In Paris, I don't remember if it was four or two. But, but yeah, that sort of Fire and Ice kind of threw off the whole schedule, I guess. So... Yeah, Goblin Welders alone. Not really too worried about that. It's a, it's a really good card. Yeah. Well, and I think the foils of that I've seen on eBay, they're going, you know, for like 80 bucks or something. That's that's a decent price for a judge foil, you know? 
But then everyone everyone was scratching their heads, you know, where's the mana crypt? Mm-hmm. So this could be the mana crypt. Right. Well, that's a hope. I mean, it, it makes a little bit more sense because the Goblin Welder decks in Vintage and Legacy, they want four Goblin Welders, so it makes sense that even if a judge isn't going to be playing in that sort of a deck or put those in a deck, they'll want to sell them as a set to somebody who will appreciate them as a set. Mm. Every format where Mana Crypt is legal, which is Commander and Vintage... It's a singleton, yeah. It's restricted. So you're going to only want one of them. It makes sense that this is where you give it out. It's for this this sort of mailing to everybody, just here's your promo. Except that the same applies to Soul Ring, and yet they just put it into every one of the Commander sealed decks. Because right. ev- every commander deck needs a soul ring, so wouldn't the same apply to mana crypt? Um, well, that's that's true, I suppose. I think there's a a certain difference with <laughs> with mana crypt there, though. Ouch! Um, I don't want to take damage. Yeah, there's that part of it. Um, I think also it doesn't. I mean, maybe it goes into every commander deck, but soul ring definitely goes into every mana. Every uh, commander deck. Also, um, I did want to mention that uh, they've just made the decisions public for who will be going to Pro Tour Philadelphia as sponsored judges. Maybe Mana Crypt will be there. Maybe they'll get. Maybe they'll get four Mana Crypts at Philly. And by they, I mean you. That's right, Sean. Yes, Sean say. Wait, let me read the, the email. What was your blurb? Um, I do a lot of stuff in California. Um, Sean Catanese leading many of the efforts in California. Yeah. I mean, so in that announcement, Andy was very generous, and he put a little note about what everybody has done for the program kind of next to their name um, as sort of a a mini introduction even um, for those of us who don't know one another um, on that list. So, yeah, um, I'll be in Philly. Um, and actually, um, no, it's too bad. It's too bad that Andy didn't solicit me for a blurb about you, because cause then it could have said something like "He of the sultry voice" or something uh, like that. It, it, I or, or quashes needless banter, keeps things on topic. Yes, that that's I, I, I probably would have said something like that, and I, I you know, um, but nonetheless. I'm happy to just to be on the list. I mean, that's... This is fantastic. We have... So from California, Toby Elliott, Jeff Morrow, Eric Levine... David Zimmett. David Zimmett, Sean, and... Jacob. Jacob Paterici. Yeah, we were very well represented, though. Um, Something that I'm glad to see. Very glad to see. Labor Day weekend. um, Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, then I don't even have to take a day off to go. Yeah. No, it's it's going to be fantastic. Um, I, no, I was not selected, but I'm going to be there for uh, the parties. Well, you you weren't selected, but did you apply? No, I didn't apply. I wish I had applied, if only to see Andy Hack's blurb about me. Okay. Well, Andy, if you're listening, please just send Ricky a blurb about... 
you know, himself. <laughs> well, I think there are a lot of judges now that are like, oh, what, was what would Andy fl- say about me? What would my it's kind of like your eulogy or your, or your tombstone, right? You kind of want to know what they're going to say about you. Um, you know, I, I really don't like thinking about that as an epitaph for me. Leading many efforts in California. I, I like to think that is like... <laughs> I'm not saying that this should be on your tombstone. Okay. But I'm saying like the, the thing on the tombstone, people are curious about what might be. Mm-hmm. So the people who are not selected, judges who are not selected for Pro Tour Philly, we are all scratching our chins going, I wonder. Yeah, it's worth noting that there are a lot of very good judges that applied for Pro Tour Philly and were not put on staff. Um, my hope is that, of course, we see them at, at other events, too, going forward. Um, I, I know there are just – I think Andy said that for every one person that was accepted under the sponsorship, there were 1.5 that were not. Um, so that means that there were a lot of applications um, and some pretty tough decisions to make on his end. So I you know, I don't envy him in that regard. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, I'm – I mean, I'm humbled to be on that list. I really like I really like the staff. As always, I wish there was more international representation. It's a, I guess it's a tough tough climate to get people from overseas. I'll be gratified to see a lot of people that I have only met digitally or only heard of, um, hmm. you know, only seen once or twice. Uh, people that I you know definitely like Stephen Briggs will be there. Um, and I'm definitely looking forward to, um, you know, sitting down with him and talking to him about charity events. Because Stephen Briggs, LTU United States, right. videos on instructing on how to hold charity events. Yes. Um, or Justin Turner. Turner will be there. LTU United States, acquisition right. articles, and his enthusiasm. Well, and the judge class articles. Um, the judge class contribution to the wiki, like he kind of organized that. Um, and I definitely want to talk to him about that and actually maybe see if we can get some sort of uh, audio class going for that at some point. Um, you know, there, there's really some great material that he's contributed also. Um, so there's really, it definitely is a great list of judges um, going to Pro Tour Philly. So, well. Um, I hope to see you judging head judging my two-headed giant event that I plan on playing in. Okay. I, I'm down for it. I, two-headed giant is something that I do look forward to judging. Um, it's actually a format that I, I kind of like judging. Um, even, well, especially now that there aren't any really any real guidelines for how to run it at a competitive level event. And yet um, sometimes we do. Yeah. <laughs> at, at Pro Tour Nagoya... I was the head judge of a two-headed giant public event. Mm-hmm. Run it, it competitive. It, yeah, run it competitive because it was for the Limit Special Qualifier, which is a, a Japanese tournament series that is very prestigious. So they didn't want any shenanigans. We had deck lists. We had mm, some deck checks. Deck checks are difficult because you have to carry off four decks. So it's a little bit staff intensive for 2HG. Mm-hmm. But we pulled off a good event. It was well, you a, know, lot of, a lot of fun. 
you mentioned how intense it is to try to do a deck check of multiple, you know, have four players at once at a table. One of the things that we did, I think for the first time, um, at least at the professional level, um, was at Worlds. One of the Japanese level ones that was on the floor with us, um, that, you know, that, that I think it was the, the third day of competition, one of the team competition days, we actually did deck checks of some of the team matches. Um, oh, that yeah. Was, that was we an interesting sort of thing that was just, I don't think, ever done before um, by the way that Ricardo reacted to it. Um, but that was at the suggestion of one of the Japanese judges, and we, we decided to go forward with it. And it's actually kind of interesting to sort of do that in that environment because they were kind of surprised by it. Some of the players, I think, were surprised that we were doing deck checks at that event um, because, you know, they're used to it in the one-on-one, but with the teams, you're like, well, you know, this is a team event. They, they can't check us all all six at once. That's that's silly. Or, or they were unsurprised when the first judge, because you have to swoop when one of the pairs presents. Right. So one judge comes in, and then the, the two other matches in the team match look over, and they're like, huh? Oh, okay. And they just start to get their decks ready anyway. Right. You know, they pack up their decks and sideboards in their box. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you just, the first one to present, you just go after them and say, okay, um, stop. I'll need the whole table. Let's go. Um, but yeah, that was, that was interesting. But yeah, deck checking at two at a giant brings a whole different aspect in because it's competitive, it's competitive for a format that has no competitive real guidelines. So, so did you give any game losses? In, while you were head judging the uh, Two Hitter Giant event? No, no, sir. Okay. So did you have any issues where you would have given a game loss uh, if it was a an individual event? Yes. And how did you handle them instead? Downgraded to warning. <laughs> what, what were those situations? You know, just the deck list errors for okay. the most part. Okay. And what, I mean... Tell me more about why you decided at the as the head judge. Why did you decide to downgrade those? Like, what was the philosophy you relied on for that purpose? The philosophy I relied on is in two-headed giant, game loss equals match loss, which equals suck. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I chose the non-suckage method of judging. Okay. That's that seems fair. That seems like the right way to go. Um, I think also, you know, a lot of those deck list errors are probably pretty obviously, you know, honest mistakes um, and the potential for advantage. It's possible, it, it, you know, you'd register a whole bunch of extra bombs or something or, or come in with a, a couple decks that you just think would be fantastic um, and sort of have a pool around that. But I think... You probably, you know, have the right approach there. Yes, not non-suckage. Okay. Well, speaking of non-suckage, I'm going to one of these these fixes um, that actually just recently changed. Let's let's change gears a little bit here. And talk oh, about the IPG. Yes. This is another non-suckage moment, um, and that is that the infraction procedure guidelines have changed. One is actually very substantial, and I'm very glad to see it. Um, so let's do that one second. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. The Okay. The 
So the minor change. Yes. The minor change uh, is with regard to um, improperly determining a winner. And that's basically now to say that improperly determining a winner includes um, using some random method of deciding whether or not you play the match or you intentionally draw. This infraction originally was called randomly determining a winner. Right. And then someone somewhere asked a question, well, what if people arm wrestle to determine the winner? Mm-hmm. That's not quote-unquote random. You know, no. it's, a, it's a contest of strength. Right. There's some skill of some sort involved. Yeah. Or what if they you know, race across the convention's hall right. to see who wins? And so, like, all of these silly semantics, right? And so they changed the name of the infraction to improperly determining a winner to encompass the non-random methods that people were talking about. It's like, okay, it's not about whether it's actually random or not. It's whether they are not playing the game of magic to determine the winner. Right. They're playing other games or, or other things. And that's actually a philosophy that goes throughout the IPG, is that, we want the result of a magic tournament to be reflective of what happens when people play magic. I mean, that's, that, that same philosophy um, is imbued in the aspects of the IPG that talk about why things are warnings as opposed to game losses, or why things um, are, are game losses instead of um, disqualifications or other things. You know, the reason that we have certain penalties is because we want magic to be determined by people playing the game and not, you know, gotcha moments. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but back to this improperly determining winner. The next semantic argument popped up was, what if I want to play the match and you want to ID? ID And then we're intentional to draw. Yeah, because you have more points than me and you can get into top eight with a draw. Mm -hmm. But I need to win to get into top eight, so I want to play. I don't want to draw. I would be drawing myself into ninth. Right. And so we butt our heads over this, and then we say, okay, fine, let's roll a die. On even, we'll play. On odds, we'll draw. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not improperly determining the winner, because a draw does not equal winner, and... If we play, if the role says we play, we're still playing magic to determine the winner. Right. But that's still that's still in the same boat as all this. You know, it, the infraction still says determining a winner and drawing is not determining a winner, but you're still determining the match outcome. And I think there's sort of this tension in the IPG also where people are looking at this and saying, you know, we want this to be readable. We want people to understand this document. We want it to be accessible. And at the same time, we need it to be as comprehensive as it can be without being too clunky. Um, and so I think if they had instead changed the name of the infraction to improperly determining a match outcome, then you would have people arguing about, you know, well, what if we randomly decide who wins this game? That's not necessarily who's determining the match, so that's fine. You know, you get a lot of more semantic arguments in that. Um, and I think the the phrase that Toby used to explain this, Toby Elliott, the level five judge, who's um, one of the 
the primary drivers of policy here. Um, he basically summed it up as, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. We want things to be good. So they're going to be a little bit imperfect some of the time. Toby, Toby Elliott, the calm, friendly master of policy who keeps us on the essential essence and diligently keeps us from needing a vast list of exceptions to make mm-hmm. a ruling. Absolutely. He, that's his blurb. Yeah. <laughs> and that's 100% exactly correct. Um, the calm, friendly master. So there was one other minor change, um, and that is that there's a clarification that says that uh, when you make an illegal choice um, for a permanent, it's the same as making no choice. And this would be something like, um, let's see, I own a uh, shield of Emeria, enters the battlefield, and as she enters the battlefield, you choose colorless, for instance. That that would be, you're making a choice, it's an illegal choice, it's the same as making no choice. So, um, and this was another semantic argument that got clarified here, where someone was saying, well, you know, they made a choice. It may not have been a legal one, but they made a choice. So we can't go back and have them make a new choice when the game state is illegal. You know, we, we just have to live with that. And instead, the right way to do that is to fix the illegal choice and say, make a legal one. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's all. I mean, well, that's all for the small changes in the IPG. Can we talk about the big one now? Oh, boy. Well... I was actually present when the incident that led to this change happened. I was there. This this was uh, this was the Star City Games Open in Atlanta during the Legacy portion, the Legacy Open on Sunday. After the deck lists had been all counted and verified, sometime I think it was like round six. The the coverage team, one of the people on coverage, came over to us on stage and said, uh, yeah, this deck list is wrong because they had the, the player on a feature match and so they had their deck list there so they could talk about the decks and they noticed an error on it. The error was that the player had Ancient Grudge listed on his deck list in the main deck as a four of. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at the list, it was very obvious that he was not playing Ancient Grudge. He's for, playing Ancient Tomb. Right? Yeah. First off, um, the Ancient Grudges were listed in the land section with all the rest of the lands. Right. And and actually, the Star City Open lists have actual headings for the card types in different yeah, areas yeah. on the list, which is actually very helpful for figuring these sorts of things out. But also, if you if you know Legacy, if and if you know this type of deck, it was a mud deck, which uses ancient tombs and city of traders to power out artifacts. Mm-hmm. And you know he's got all the usual suspects in there for big artifacts. The problem was the IPG at the time was very clear that this guy has listed a legal card. You know, ancient grudge is legal for the Legacy format. We of course checked his deck. He was playing Ancient Tomb, as we all realized. But according to the IPG, we had to follow the policy that says either he has to get four Ancient Grudges and put them in his deck instead of the Ancient Tombs, or if he, quote-unquote, fails to find Ancient Grudges, 
he could substitute basic lands for them. Right. And I, and so, I use the quote unquote because obviously the only way he could possibly continue was to put basic lands in. Like he, he's not going to play four ancient grudges in that deck. Like he probably can't even cast them. Sure. And it's also worth noting here that if instead, under that old IPG, if instead he had in, written something like ancient and left it at that, or just right, left, uh, or just an left, unclear card name, right, or if he had just left those four slots completely blank, if he just yeah. registered a fifty-six card list. He would have been allowed to play Ancient Tombs. Right, because then you look at the list and the IPG says, or used to say, in this case, when we have an ambiguous name or the deck list is short, go see what the player's playing, match the list to reflect the deck, because that's what they're playing and that's what they just forgot, and they'll get a game loss, and that's, you know, the same as if they had, um, you know, in all three of these cases, no name, ambiguous name or wrong name, they're all getting a game loss. So that's all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so the IPG had this sort of weird it, it, inconsistency where we treat somebody differently if they're playing something different. And I know this actually turned into a, a big argument, well, a policy argument, so it's not like people got angry about this, but it turned into a big policy discussion because there is, I think, a greater perception among some judges, that there's more potential for advantage in this sort of thing. Yeah, this was a strange case because it, it was the it was the fact that he had accidentally written a real card name just as a brain fart, or possibly maybe someone's talking to him while he's writing his deck list out and says, "How you how do you how are you going to beat an ancient grudge?" You know, because it destroys two artifacts. It's a heavy artifact-based deck. And, like, his brain is just thinking about Ancient Grudge and he writes it down. Right. Well, and and I've had something similar to this happen um, at Pro Tour San Diego in the public events there. Um, you know, somebody had the sort of the, the classic example of a Johnny Goldman on the list and um, – or no, I'm sorry, a Johnny Vengeant on the list, a Johnny Goldman in the deck, and no red sources in the deck. Um, so, you know, he was clearly playing one versus the other. You look at his deck, he's playing one, but the fix is awkward because it's going to, you know, take out your Johnny Goldmains, put in some Vengeance, or basic land, you know? Um, or two, two Johnny Vengeance and two basic lands, i.e. mountains, right. so that you can play your Vengeance. Right, and hopefully he's running Arid Maces too, but even then, I mean, that's still pretty ridiculous. That that was the really weird corner case where the fix allowed you to just completely change your deck right. legally. Right, and so now this fix actually fixes that problem too. So now let's talk about what the IPG reads now, because um, we've talked a lot about what, what it used to look like. Um, so now, um, and this goes all the way down to... Okay, so the best way to look at this is actually in the additional remedy section. So you remove any cards in the deck that are illegal, um, and then you also fix any failure to decide board, and then you alter the deck list to reflect the deck, which is, I mean, that we apply this in all cases. That's that's sort of the big change here. Um, and if the remaining deck has too few cards, then you add basic lands 
to reach the minimum number. Um, so that's where we get so that's where we get this fix now. There used to be all this other language in there about well, if they had listed the wrong basic land, then you can fix it. Or but if it was some other card, you couldn't. Back and forth. This is much simpler. Actually, what what does Toby have to say about that? He says. Assuming that you believe the error was an accident, and, th- and this may be quoted in the actual document, but assuming that you believe the error was an accident, always fi- fix the deck list to match the deck. This reflects the fact that while the deck list is important as a way to keep players from changing their decks throughout a tournament, the deck itself is far more likely to reflect what the player is actually playing. That's that's almost like meta philosophical, right? Because the deck itself is more more likely to reflect what the player is actually playing. Like, how could it be less likely somehow? I, I just you know. <laughs> and the game loss itself is sufficient penalty for having failed to register things correctly. Right, and, and this is also turning going back to that initial philosophy of we want a tournament to be determined by people playing Magic, and you know. Giving somebody, you know, all these extra basic lands to replace cards that are illegal or right. cards that they uh, that aren't on their list—that's really not determining the end of the tournament by how well they play. It's just how well they filled out this form at the beginning of the tournament, and that's a very different thing. It's not the sort of skill that Magic is intended to test. Right, and and the the sad ending to the story was that. When we, when we decided, and when by we I mean Sam Strauss, level two from North Carolina, was the head judge of the Legacy Open, and he consulted with myself and some other judges on staff on what to do here. I think Steven Zwanger, who had head judged the standard, and we we looked at the IPG and we says this is what we have to do, and immediately I knew that the player would drop. He was he was still in position to make top eight, I think. He was X and one at the time, and not only you know would it be a game loss, but the fix prescribed was that he would have to get ancient grudges or basic lands. And, and know, knowing how the deck operates, like it yeah. relies on the fast mana of ancient tomb. And I was like, he's just going to drop. Like he can't play with this deck with basic lands. And as soon as he got the news, he turned back to his opponent at the table and said, "You know, you win. I'm dropping." Um, he was very disappointed. I, I talked to him afterwards. Um, I've gotten to know him pretty well over the last few months because he plays cool decks like this. Uh, and I like talking to him about his decks. But he said, yeah, I understand. I'm not mad at you guys, i.e. the judges. Like, you're just following policy. I'm more angry at myself for making this error. But now we have the ability to fix this where, you know, they're still going to get the game loss. So they're still... There's still that, but he's, you know, players like him will be able to continue playing in tournaments with the decks that they brought to play with. Right. I think that that's much more in line with the philosophy of what judges are really here to do. Um, we've is it is it mail time? <laughs> yes, it is. Good call. So we have a ton of questions here because it's been a little while since we uh, recorded last. So oh boy. Uh, it's a bunch of questions, but we can go through them pretty quickly here. Uh, here's one quick question. Um, this is regarding one of the new commanders from the commander decks. Uh, Uh-oh. I, I do not know much about these. So okay. let me well, pull up my gather, and hopefully they're in there already. 
I'll describe them when we get on here. Um, so this question is regarding Ruhan. So Ruhan is uh, one of the – he's a giant, 7-7 uh, seven, seven for four is, mana. Is it Ruhan of the Fomori? Yes, Ruhan okay. of the Fomori. All right. They are on Gatherer. Yes. Um, he says, my commander, playgroup, doesn't allow a player to split attacks between opponents on a given turn. I know that in this case, it would I would use um, the turn-based action of choosing a defending player at the beginning of combat uh, step – before Ruhan's triggered ability goes on the stack. My thought is that Ruhan chooses who to attack, and if it's not my chosen opponent, then I would then be able to choose whether or not to attack my chosen opponent, since Ruhan isn't able to attack the player randomly chosen by his ability. Is this correct? I couldn't find the FAQ, so I understand if you can't answer yet. So, um, What? Wait, is there an FAQ for this set? Okay. But this is actually probably not something that even if there was an FAQ probably wouldn't be covered because I think uh, you know the you can only attack one person in combat. That's sort of that, a, that goes against the spirit of commander. Well, and it's also not a very common variant. I mean, it's more common just to have free for all, or I mean, some places I've seen use like star or attack left or something, but. It's much more common just to have like a free for all. I mean, that's what you, you want this to be a, a royal rumble of giant creatures, all sorts. Mm-hmm. Of, that's what commander's all about. So it, it is pretty straightforward, and I think um, Kevin actually got it just right. He needs to choose an opponent um, as a turn-based action as combat begins, mm-hmm. to, and that ha- happens before any triggered abilities go on the stack. And then Ruhan triggers. And then Ruhan triggers, and we'll choose an opponent randomly, and then Ruhan will have to attack that opponent if he's able. Well, if he's not able to do that, there's nothing saying, well, he can't attack somebody else. So That's true. If he wants to attack somebody else, sure. So I'm being told that there is a ugly text FAQ on wizards.com. Oh, really? Commander FAQ added to the show notes. If Ruhan isn't forced to attack the chosen player for one of the above reasons, but can still attack, you may choose to have Ruhan attack another player, attack a planeswalker, or not attack at all. Okay. So did you notice the political commentary on this card? Uh, no, I didn't. Tell me it's, why. It's red, white, and blue. And attacks people at random. What else is red, white, and blue and attacks people at random? Email us at judgecast at gmail.com if you have an answer to that. All right. Are you typing a note to yourself to cut that part out? Okay. Let's go on to our next... More mail! Questions for you. This comes from... Oh, this comes from Dave Robinder. Uh, Dave... Uh, you may know him from mtgpad.com fame. Uh, he's He basically makes up life pads for people. Uh, he's got a, a lot of cool stuff there. Um, actually, he's from Colorado Springs. I got to meet him when I was up there for uh, the Grand Prix in Denver last uh, earlier this year. Wow, so, now you're making a lot of shit up. I mean, stuff. No, 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 no. Dave, Dave's really a nice guy. He, I, yeah, I got to, I've, I've met him a couple times now, I think. Um, so, um, let's see. Question that came up recently. He has a Shrine of Loyal Legions on the board with a single counter on it, as well as one other artifact, which is called a Memnite. He also has a Dispatch in hand. 
and he'd like to exile one of his opponent's creatures. So he wants to do the following. He wants to cast Dispatch, targeting his opponent's dude, which will then trigger the Shrine of Loyal Legions, because he's casting a white spell. So he hmm. wants to then resolve the Shrine's trigger, place a second counter on it, with Dispatch still in the stack, pay three mana, sacrifice the Shrine, produce two Mir. Now that he has Metalcraft, he'll let Dispatch resolve, and Dispatch will then exile the targeted creature. What? So, That's crazy. It's, it's, instead of tapping it, because he doesn't have Metalcraft when he casts it, but he has Metalcraft when it's resolving, so instead it'll be exiling the creature instead of tapping it. What? So he wants to know, if, first off, his simple question is, does that work? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a great, great mental play there. I like that. Um, that's definitely a... I hope I win a draft using that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it actually works similarly, and he mentions this here. So also if um, his opponent had a shatter, he could shatter one of his artifacts before Dispatch resolves. Oh. Instead of exiling it, he would tap it. Tap it. Right. That's that's the sad half. Right. Yeah, the spell checks on resolution whether you have Metalcraft. Um, that's a fantastic... Wow. So, Dave, good question. Um, there's also another one that he's got here. Um, his second question... Um, is with regard to Frexian Metamorph. Um, he wants to just... Oh. Like, oh, it's a very simple question. I no, no, no. I'll, I'll tell you after the question. Okay, well, the question is very simple. He wants to know, uh, when does he choose the creature? And uh, the simple answer to that is, on the resolution of the spell. So once your your opponent has passed priority with that as the top object on the stack, um, you guys have both said, okay, we're going to let the spell resolve. Then you get to choose if it's copying an artifact or a creature or what it's copying. But if you want to, say, respond to that choice, it's already too late. You can't respond to the choice being made. You can only respond to the spell while it's on the stack. Um, that goes for pretty much everything that's a clone, um, especially clone. So this clone is a pretty much a bomb and limited I was at a limited event this past weekend, Grand Prix Kansas City, put on by Steve Port and Legion Events, which they did a fantastic job. Um, one of one of Steve's guys, like one of his judges, uh, Jordan Baker, has a fantastic program called R Tools, which takes a lot of the output of DCI Reporter, the program running software and does cool things with it. One of the things he was able to do was they had four big screen LCD TVs set up on the sides of the stage, and he could, they had networked um, mini laptops connected to those screens, and he could send information to those networked laptops from the main scorekeeping computer and they could scroll pairings on each of those screens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen this at public events in the past. Sure. Yeah, but they were they were divided by name range. Usually, there's just one projector with the scrolling oh. pairings. This was actually divided into four for the name ranges, and each screen had just that section. Neat. And I was the paper team lead on day one, and I 
looked at these things and was like, well, what the heck am I going to do now? <laughs> right. I mean, one of the major duties of paper <laughs> is to actually put up pairings. But if your scorekeeper is already sort of doing that, then all you need to do really then as a paper team is what, match slips? Yeah, we did that. Um, but also, the R-Tools program was able to instantly put the pairings up on a website that they had. It was like www.legionevents slash epic, I think. And you enter your DCI number into the field on that website, and then it tells you your table number and your opponent. Nice. <laughs> wow. And, and so, I think- so if you have a smartphone, when they announce pairings are off, you just... Go to that site. Da, 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 da. All right, I'm off to my table. You know, ahead of the crowd. Right. Well, and you guys have something similar for the Star City Open weekends, right? Because yeah, you have a Twitter account that will tweet you your pairings. Is that right? Yeah, we have a Twitter account where we where we uh, post a short uh, a link to a text page. We take the pairings and we turn it into text form and then we have a we use one of the websites that can go text to website mm-hmm. and then do that so these are things that legitimately save tournaments I, I would say on the whole on the whole day probably saved us like half an hour mm-hmm. of just people not standing you know trying to get through wade through crowds of people to see their pairings and then wade back out because the TV screens, you know, more than three people could view the pairings at the same time. There, there could be a crowd of people standing around the TV screen waiting to see their name while it scrolls up. Mm-hmm. And then go, oh, that's me, and then go to their table. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like a really efficient way to do things. Well, good. Are you ready for well, more to listen to questions, or do you have more to talk about on this? Oh, no, no. <laughs> so we were talking about Phyrexia Metamorph, because right. it was a limited event. And it's in this limited format, Scars of Mirrodin block. There was one player who had a Thrun the Last Troll and thought, this thing is beating the tar out of my opponent. It's a 4-4, hexproof, regenerates. This is unstoppable. I want another one. And he metamorphed. (laughs) He cast his metamorph and said, Thrun the Last Troll. Opponent looked at him and said, okay. They're both legends or legendary. Put them in the graveyard. Right. <laughs> then there was a there was another player who's facing off against a Karn. Karn the Karn liberated. Mm-hmm. He just needs some creatures, right, on the board to attack Karn, be able to attack Karn and take his loyalty down. Right. So there was no creatures on the board, and he casts an Oxidus Scrap Melter. So, or no artifacts, I mean. So it doesn't destroy anything, but he just needs the 3-3 body, the hill giant, to beat down on Karn. <laughs> and he says, you know what? Karn could just use his ability to exile this permanent, so I'm going to need another creature. I'm going to cast my Phyrexian Metamorph and no, copy, no. The, copy the Scrap Belter because it's a 3-3. It's the biggest body on the field. I, I need some more bodies to attack Karn. Right. Now, now there's a caveat here, and that is that Phyrexian Metamorph... Whenever it copies whatever it's copying, even it if it copies, remains an artifact. 
So yeah, wow. He didn't realize this. A judge happened to be watching and says, "Yeah, that's still an artifact." So the Phyrexian scrap melter morph had to target itself with its own ability. Wow, good times. Just two cases of Phyrexian metamorph suiciding. And what, yeah, in one case, it actually took something else with it too. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the worst case because Thrun is pretty unbeatable. Yeah. Well, good. Um, well, should we go on to another question here? More mail. Yep. So this one comes from Dane from Tallahassee, and really is Dane from Tallahassee. We're not making that up. So he says hello there. My question. Hi, involves, Dane. My question involves. A situation that came up in my Scars of Mirrodin block draft at my last FNM. My opponent had poison counters, and I had Viridian Betrayers in my graveyard. I wanted to know if Corpse Cur could recur my Viridian Betrayers, since the card said it had infected my poison. if my opponent was poisoned. Um, the judge there was uncertain, but figured that the card said it had infect based on the game state, so I could target it. Um, oops. So... I'm a bit uncertain as to whether or not that ruling was correct. I'd like to hear you guys explain how this works to me. So, um, not naming names. In fact, I can't because I don't know who this judge was. Um, that judge... Um, Survey says... So, Betrayer's ability only works on the battlefield. Um, as it's not a characteristic defining ability... Um, and it doesn't only, say graveyard. Right. Um, it's it's also not a characteristic divining ability because it only works if a certain condition is met. Um, that is, that your opponent's being poisoned. So um, when it's in the graveyard, it doesn't have infect. Uh, it can't have infect. Um, and Corpse Cur can't target it. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, It would need to say, what, like, Viridian Betrayers has infect as long as the opponent is poisoned and it's in a graveyard. Heart you, Corpse Cur... XOXO PS re, 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 uh, Regrow me please right. Corpse Cur Yeah and It would have to be called like Viridian Corpse Cur Lover yes. Yeah so that does not work Go back and talk to your local judge about that And make sure he gets it right next time And uh, hopefully that will be better for you guys in the future Speaking right. of getting things wrong Uh oh um, About the graveyard what you're alluding to here is, in our last show, we had a question about Sutured Ghoul, and I think we sort of converted it to Mortivore when we were talking about it in answer to some of the questions, but I think a couple of references to Sutured Ghoul still got stuck in there. I wanted to clarify a little bit, um, because we were either wrong or confusing, and both is bad. So, Sutured Ghoul has a characteristic defining ability, and that ability functions in all zones, just like any characteristic defining ability does. However, uh, Sutured Ghoul's power and toughness setting ability, its, its characteristic defining ability, is linked to another ability that it has. And that ability um, only resolves when the creature enters the battlefield and exiles creatures in the graveyard, which sets the power and toughness. When that sutured ghoul changes zones, when it goes to the library, when it goes to the graveyard, when it goes to somebody's hand, it becomes a new object. So, 
in the graveyard, it won't see the creatures that the previous version of it exiled. However, in magical fantasy land where the rules of magic somehow bend, and you can somehow get ability, that first ability, to resolve while Sutured Ghoul is in the graveyard, then its power and toughness in the graveyard will refer to those creatures that it exiled when that ability resolves. But that's impossible. It's just not possible. Um, so, while Sutured Ghoul does have a characteristic defining ability, while that ability does work in all zones, it works a little differently than most of the characteristic defining abilities you're going to find that define power and toughness. Is this is this a, a unique ability? I don't know if it's unique, but in terms of CDAs, is there any other CDA that is defined by another ability, a linked ability like this one? Yeah, because um, the other ones, like all of the the Lurgoifs, are just defined by a game state, you know, number of something in the graveyard, which right. is o- always definable. Until they make a wacky card that's like, play with your graveyard face down. And be like, oh no, my brain! <laughs> um, well, let's see. I, th- I think it might be unique. Might be the panglacial worm of CDAs. There's another creature with a similar ability to oh. Sutured Ghoul. Tell us, um, tell us. It's from Unhinged. Not sure that counts either. I don't think it does. Um, but it's snot, S N O T. Um, because as it enters the battlefield, you may stick it onto another creature named Snot in play. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do, all those form a single creature and the power and toughness are equal to the number of snots stuck S- together. Squared. Squared. Uh oh yeah, you the square of that number. So I suppose if this is in the graveyard it's, it's zero CDA. squared. Right. But so its CDA will not be the same as it was when its ability resolved and well except that if it's in the graveyard, chances are it died, right? So it was on the battlefield and you killed it. Well I mean they're all sort of stuck together anyway, right? So So if the snots die together, they're still touching in the graveyard? They're, they're, they're still stuck together? I think, you know, in Silver Bordered Land, that I works. might say that that works. Yeah. So, All right. I'll allow it. Uh, although I, I will also never play with uninch cards. <laughs> okay. Well. I believe we should move on to the next question. <laughs> Fair enough. Onward. Although now I'm looking at a picture of snot. <laughs> and it's got... There's, like, skeletons in the slime. More mail, Sean! Ah, okay. Um, this one comes from Tosis in Germany. Um, he's a level one judge. He's Gutentag. Borsheim? P-F-O-R-Z Heim. Like Hammerheim. Um, okay. <laughs> I like that. I like how that's the first thing that came to your mind in regards to Heim. Tosis's question to us is what do you do when you perform a deck check and the players put the decks and sideboards into the deck box, hand it to you when you open it, 
you find extra cards that were clearly not intended to be in the deck. Um, this often happens when there's, say, an extra basic land or something, or something that isn't legal in the format, or worse, something that is legal in the format. Um, how do you distinguish it from the, from the main deck? Um, of course, this has all sorts of permutations of ways it can be better and worse. Um, you know, if the card is playable in the deck, if it's legal for the format, if it's neither of those things. Um, so, basically, he wants to know how should he have taken care of this issue, um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's the question: How do we address this issue when there are these extra cards in the deck box when we're handed the decks when we do a deck check? Oh dear! Indeed. One of one of the great pet peeves of many judges is mm-hmm. players who do this because technically everything in the box is the deck and sideboard. Right. In so terms of policy me, legality. Sure. So you give me seventy six cards, and those seventy six cards. 75 of them match your deck list. The 76th card is legal for the format. You're out of luck. Right. That's a deck deck list problem. And yeah, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of arguments, right? That players will make. We just had one at Grand Prix, Kansas city in the PTQ on Sunday, which was standard. A player was using, a magic card as a divider between his deck and his sideboard. He was playing a birthing pod deck. So it has lots of one of creatures to, to chain through. And he was using a necropede as his divider that was not on his deck list. And I believe the deck and sideboard may have been sleeved and the, the necropede was not, or maybe the sideboard was unsleeved and the necropede was sleeved in a different color sleeve. Regardless, this was a deck deckless problem. Mm-hmm. The cards he gave to us did not match his deck list. And in this case, it was imminently playable in the deck, right? Like oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe there are circumstances where you'd want to slide in a necropede and birthing pod, sacrificing your bird's paradise to get it as sure. like, you know, blocker, put counters on things, kill some things. Yeah. So, okay, th- th- and that's pretty clear, I think. Now, I think there's also some room for exceptions here, though, and that is that if I present my sideboard to my opponent and then I have other cards in the deck box, but I take Abs- the sideboard out... Absolutely. Yeah. So this was something... I don't know if you saw this at Worlds in Chiba... But Japanese players do present their sideboards. Mm-hmm. They do. They do. When they, you know, w- when they're shuffling up, they'll open their deck box, pull out their fifteen sideboard cards, and you know, lay them out often. Let the opponent count the fifteen and know that those are the sideboard cards. And that's and also part of the Magic Tournament rules, the MTR. That's one thing you should do. Yeah, and then any other cards that happen to be on the table in the deck box, those are not part of the sideboard at that point because it's been presented to the opponent. Right. So when we make that deck check, if you know, if there's any confusion, 
if I can go back to the opponent, uh, or if the player says, you know, I showed my, my my opponent that I had these 15 cards in these sleeves, these unsleeved cards that were right, in the right. box. I just gave them to you in the box because you needed something to carry the deck with. We can sort of work through that, and we're not going to end up probably at that point of a game loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a competitive, it is a game loss. Right. And even, like, people will you will have, like, extra basic lands in there for whatever reason, and they're like, oh, but I would, you know, why would... What's the advantage of having basic lands? Well, these days, in the pre-banning Cobblade Mirror, many Cobblade decks would have some kind of extra land, usually not a basic, but an extra land in the sideboard because the, the mirror match is heavily you know, influenced by Tectonic Edge. Right. So there can be reasons to bring an extra land in against land destruction. Sure. But ultimately, it's not the judge's job to determine, like, what is, you know, strategically correct. We we don't want to get into questions of, you know, is this the right strategic choice or not? And is that why this player is making the decision and have that somehow decide, um, you know, especially when we're talking about a deck problem or deck deckless problem. That's not the sort of question we should be getting into. Um, that should be a very simple, this is legal list, this is not a legal list, this matches, this doesn't. It shouldn't be a question of strategy. I mean, occasionally I've seen in an investigation, um, trying to determine if somebody's trying to, you know, angle shoot and they get into a bad area where they, they commit fraud. I mean, I've seen intention and strategy matter in that investigation, but more often than not, judges are generally going to shy away from that sort of analysis. Yeah, because there was a wacky sideboard option at one at one point of uh, of having Phage, the untouchable, in your sideboard in a deck that couldn't cast it against to be brought in against um, what is that? Telemann performance. <laughs> Right, because then, you know... Because Telemann Performance was brought in against creatureless decks to mill them out, I think, right? Because if you don't hit a creature, it just mills everything. Right. But then these creatureless decks would board in the one phage because when you do hit a creature, you have to put it onto the battlefield. The 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 person who cast Telemann Performance. (laughs) Wow. So then, like, that's, that's... the cornerest of cases where it's like, why do you have a black card in your your blue deck sideboard, right? But mm. there's sometimes there's legitimate reasons for wacky things. Sure. Okay. Well, now there's also another question that Thomas gets into here, um, and that is the distinction between tournament error failure to follow and tournament error deck deckless problem. So basically. Let's talk a little bit more about where failure to follow gets used because I see this often with, and sometimes with newer judges, sometimes with judges that have sort of been around for a long time, they will use this failure to follow as sort of a a catch-all for like, well, you didn't do something that you probably should have, so let's give you this because we need to give you a warning somehow. Um, And we, you know, they try to fit it into this failure to follow official announcements. Um, and it's, you know, if it's it's wrong, I guess that's the simple way to put it. 
Well, are you talking about failure to follow or the provision in unsporting conduct major for not following direct direct instructions? Oh, that's another another place where people get mixed up all the time. Actually, let's cover that one first. That's very easy. Um, so term and error, failure to follow, is like smoking in the venue when you shouldn't. Um, it's things like that. It's, it's things that are, you know, venue-oriented. The unsporting conduct major comes in when we give a direct instruction to somebody and they deliberately ignore it. A, an example of this would be something like asking a player to leave an area because they're being disruptive to the match somehow. Yeah, if the players themselves ask them to leave and you give them the instruction, I need you to not be near this match. Right. And, and they refuse to or they fail to. Um, then we're talking about unsporting conduct major, and that's a game loss, and we get into that. It's very yeah, different the, from term and error failure to follow. And the problem I often hear about, and it's not so much hear about, but it's more like read about. When, like in chat rooms, when judges are discussing things, for example, if you, um, if a player shuffles his deck, you know, gives it to his opponent, opponent shuffles, and then when they get the deck back, they cut the deck, which is no longer allowed. Right. And then a judge gets called over, well, what's the infraction? It's not really an infraction. You just say, hey, don't do that anymore. Like, you're not supposed to cut your deck when you get it back anymore. And then you get called over in another, you know, another game because they've done it again. Judge, he cut the deck again. And I see a lot of judges saying, well, you gave him a direct instruction not to cut the deck. Now it's USC minor game loss him. That, that's, you, you don't need to game loss, game loss him for that. Mm-hmm. It's really like an instances where you said where the direct instruction is given you know, to prevent disruption to the tournament. Right. I hear your cat. Yeah, let me let me open this door for him. Sorry. Um, for those of you who don't know or haven't been introduced, um, this is Rafiq. Rafiq? So Sean is following in the footsteps of oh, yeah. his mentor, Level 5 Judge Toby Elliott, oh. in naming his cat hey, Rafiq, after a magic character. Yes, yes. Um, Urza, Mishra, and Miri were his his cat are his cats, I should say. Yeah. So, and in fact, um, Rafiq here is a long-haired cat, just like those are too. So. Well, all I have to say to you guys is nerds. <laughs> oh, you know, Rafiq has a <laughs> has a funny way he got named because uh, well, he was a, a stray in our neighborhood back in Sacramento. When I made that decision to do that, to take him into our, our home and make him part of our family, my wife was out of town. And so, and we were trying to pick out her name for him. <laughs> and I sort of suggested to my wife, well, you know, um, how does Rafiq sound? And she said, oh, what? That sounds interesting. What does it mean? Uh, why do you, why do you choose that one? And I said, well, it means friend in Arabic, um, which oh. it, does. it does actually. That's what it means. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> and that's all I told her. <laughs> oh, did, does she know yet? Well, no, she does. She does yeah, now sure, because surely. like a week later after we got him back from the vet and he was fixed and we, we sort of put a picture up on Facebook and said, Hey, this is our new cat. His name's Rafiq. And everybody, like all my friends were posting questions like, does he have exalted? 
Or like <laughs> does he double strike? <laughs> right. <that's true. laughs> like, and then I get this sort of look from my wife, like, why are they what asking did- all these questions? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and she's like, "What did you do?" <laughs> right. So anyway, that's Rafik. Um, yeah, he's he's one of our two cats. Um, the other one does not have a magic related name because Lizzie's had her for ever. Interesting. Okay, so this is an F and M situation from Aaron. Um, Aaron does not say where he's from. Aaron is clearly from Djibouti. From Djibouti. Yes. Player A has Frost Titan in play. Player B has eight oh. untapped mana and a Venser emblem. He casts Sun Titan and says, target the Frost Titan with the Venser emblem. Player says, okay. And player B asks if his Sun Titan resolves. Player A says, sure. Player B says that he targets Wall of Omens in the graveyard with the Sun Titan's ability. After resolving that ability, player B says, hmm, why is that Frost Titan still in the battlefield? Player A explains, Venser's ability is countered unless you pay two. Player B says, well, I'll pay the two. Player A says, no, it's too late. So, how do you fix this? How do you rule on this? Etc. You say, that's not how it works. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Player A was, well, player A should probably have talked a little bit more to his opponent. Don't well, the, the triggered ability for Frost Titan, we can't make any assumptions about it. Because mm-hmm. it, it requires an interaction. Mm-hmm. It's my trigger, but it requires a payment from you to decide whether or not it resolves in a certain way. I get to, you know, How it resolves depends on an action from my opponent, so I can't just silently just sort of let it happen. It's got to, you know, there are other things in the game where we can sort of silently just sort of let them resolve and go back and forth because they don't have a visual effect on the game or they don't have, you know, it's all, there are some things that we don't need to necessarily go back and forth on, on talking about. Like, For instance, oh, go ahead. Well, triggered abilities with May. Sure. Are, That's are, a great example. They're a skill tester. We allow people to forget about them if they don't say anything. Right. The Frost Titan's triggered ability, we don't let you forget. So in this case, I mean, is player A actually committing fraud? Is that the guy with Frost Titan? Yeah. Uh, oh, I don't... Me. Uh, I'm going to say no. Because... I mean, the, the, the player thinks this card interacts in this way where the, the onus is on the opponent to pay the two. And that's where I think it's our job to step in and educate and say, it's it's your ability. You have to ask. You have to say, okay, you target my Frost Titan. Do you pay two? It doesn't make me feel great about this guy, but I think a lot of players try to angle shoot various things and... Those situations are not fraud. They're just moments of education. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Well, we've got a couple couple mentions here from from other... We get these messages from time to time uh, where judges or rules advisors sort of send us an email just saying... um, 
hey, thanks for the show, um, which is really great. It's actually, it makes this worthwhile. Um, but it's also, they get send us an email saying, hey, I certified, and you guys sort of helped me get to this point or helped me get interested. Oh, speak, speaking of guys that we've uh, motivated to get to this point, mm-hmm. on Sunday of Grand Prix Kansas City, Josh Schroeder, level two from Iowa, was on the certification team, and he was responsible for certifying level ones. Yes. And he was really busy. We had a judge booth set up, so we were funneling promising people to him, and he ended up testing 10 people. Oh, my God. And seven of them passed. None of them Canadians, I hope. I don't know. And I think the... The rate at which he was able to test them was because of the new L1 exam being half as long as it used to be. So right. it's it's quicker for the candidate to sit down with the exam. It's quicker to go over it with them. So I I am really a fan of the new L1 exam now. It being shorter, I still think it covers enough stuff. Like people are not certainly people are not passing easily, or or you know not. Everyone just isn't passing and becoming L1s. People are still failing this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did pass seven out of the ten that he tested. And one of them was our good friend, Eric McCormick, a.k.a. Okay. Mr. Suitcase, a.k.a. occasional guest host on uh, Monday Night Magic, the Watchman on Twitter. You know, He's very active in the community. Yes, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Eric, actually, um, at one of the Star City Opens um, a while ago. Probably Denver. Yeah, he's a great guy. Glad to see he's certified. Fantastic. Yeah, and he, you know, he's often interviewed judges. He's interested in judging. I've always been poking at him, so he finally did it. Congratulations to all the new L1s and to Josh Schroeder for doing a fantastic job with the testing. Look forward to that at your local Grand Prix, all 40 of them next year. Okay. Well, let's see. Casey has a question for us. Let's see. Casey from Casey. Brazil? Yes. Good old Casey from Brazil. Good old Casey from Brazil. Casey okay. from Brazil. Yeah, he's giving me a, a workout here trying to read his Portuguese, but I'm managing. So, he says, my name is Casey, a player who's beginning to dig into the rules of magic in the hopes of becoming a judge. Let me start by saying the judge classes on the DCI wiki are an invaluable resource. Uh, so that's a shout-out for Justin Turner and his team who did that. Ben McDowell, Michael Fortino, Brian Perlman, Matt Williams, Sean Copeland, George Fitzgerald. And I hope I'm not leaving anyone out at that point. And obviously Sheldon Menry, who is the, the godfather of Florida. Well, I think also who brought uh, up who brought all those guys up, right? So, Casey here has, says I had a question about priority between a state-based action and a triggered ability. For instance, Ooh. I have Riku of the Two Reflections. You know who that is? He's one of the new commanders. Yes, that's actually a typo. It was supposed to be Ricky of the Two Reflections. Oh, is it? Yeah, of course. That makes sense. He has Ricky of two reflections. <laughs> and my opponent 
owns a Karn Silver Golem. Well, it's nice that he owns it. Let's assume that it's also on the battlefield. If I were to play my own Karn Silver Golem and have the mana to activate Riku's creature copy ability, which would trigger first? The state-based action that, uh, he says berries, but it puts both Karns into the graveyard, or the trigger to copy Karn. Also, if the state-based action triggers and immediately resolves, will Riku still be able to trigger? Essentially, can I blow up my opponent's Karn with my own and still keep a token copy of the card? Thanks for the help. I like this card. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is very interesting. So Does that look like me? Um I'm sure we can get somebody to Photoshop your head onto Ricky of two reflections. Or even better, get the artist uh, Izzy to alter it. Yes. It looks close enough if I were to uh, wind blow and stylize my hair. Right, if you were to kiblerize your hair. And and wear awesome armor and have a what is that? Just a wand or a blowtorch? I I don't know. It is a flaming <sighs> stick of something. I often hold flaming sticks in my hand. Moving right along. <laughs> so, uh, Ricky's second ability says whenever another non-token creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may pay a green and a blue. If you do, put a token that's a copy of that creature onto the battlefield. So, now the fun thing is, yes, this works. Um, but it's awesome, awesome cake. We have one last question. One more question. Okay. Oh, you know this comes actually from some fellow podcasters. What? Yeah. There are other magic podcasts. Yeah, this there are actually many other uh, magic podcasts. This one, this one comes from the guys over at Four Spikes. So Jonathan Brostoff, uh, Greg, all, all the guys over there. This is sort of a Facebook thing that one of them has sent us sort of double-check and fact-check for them. So, let's give it a shot. So, they're talking about Creeping Tar Pit. So, Creeping Tar Pit is a land, enters the battlefield tapped. Uh, it can tap to add blue or black, and it also turns into a creature uh, for one, a blue and a black. That creature is a 3-2 blue and black elemental creature. That's unblockable, and it's still a land. Yes, Creeping Tarpit, the Jace Killer. Or is that Aaron Forsyth? So the question actually comes from, it looks like a listener of theirs. Um, so I have an activated Creeping Tarpit, and then I cast Rexian Metamorph, copying the Tarpit. What happens to the Metamorph at the end of the turn? Does he stop being a creature and turn into a land? Doesn't he just die at the end of the turn? Or does he stay a blue-black creature forever? Um, what happens? So... There's an assumption. There's an assumption there, right? That is incorrect. Um, and this assumption is that somehow this Frexian metamorph would enter the battlefield as an activated creature, manland. Instead, when one thing copies another, it copies the copyable characteristics of that card. That is, its type, its mana cost, its name, its expansion symbol, its rules text, and its power and toughness if it's got power and toughness, and its subtypes. It copies all those things. When we look at those things, we're not taking into consideration whether or not abilities on them have been activated. Um, for instance, if some if there's a shade, um, you know, the things that say "put black mana in me" and I get bigger, that doesn't matter. Activated abilities like that won't change what the copyable characteristics of the card are. 
And so we're just going to copy those characteristics, the printed things on the card. Mm, so it's a photocopy of the card. Exactly. So when we have Phryxian Metamorph um, enters the battlefield as a copy of Creeping Tar Pit, whether or not the Creeping Tar Pit is activated doesn't matter. It's still just going to be the Phryxian Metamorph is still just going to turn into an unactivated Creeping Tar Pit. And it will be tapped. Yes, it will be tapped. Enters the battlefield tapped. It copies that. Okay. So that means that um, the but it's, that, but it's an artifact. It is an artifact, yes. You have all, all right, things. But answer me this. If you activate your creeping metamorph, mm-hmm. it, is it still an artifact when it's a creature? Because when it says it's still a land, that is card text shorthand for it retains all of its types. But it's just it retains its types is needlessly confusing because 99% of the time it's just it's still a land is all you need to know. Okay. So that's why it stays an effect. That's a great question to end on. However, if you have your questions... For us, if you have questions that you would like to have answered by the expert minds of magic judges that may or may not be us, because um, sometimes we, we outsource the questions if they're really, really hard, um, please send us an email, judgecast at gmail.com. We'd be happy to get your questions. Um, we'll definitely look forward to them. So, um, yeah. Do you have anything else here? No, just stay tuned for the next episode when Jose will be back. The real Jose of Sacramento County. That could be a reality TV show. The real Jose Boveda of Sacramento County. Yes. And (laughs) perhaps a guest... Yes, and perhaps a guest. We're looking at getting any number of guests. Again, we've, we've actually got some interest from other judges that are interested in judging, are interested in becoming coming on to JudgeCast as guests. Um, one of the criteria that Ricky has so generously contributed <laughs> is that if you'd like to be a guest, um, Ricky will give us the nod or wag of the finger, depending on whether or not you've done a bunch of reviews. So... Um, if you have done reviews, it's like, you know what? I, I, I kind of don't like that because it's like, it's like telling a five-year-old to eat your vegetables. Like that's kind of how I, I look, th- th- this is my, this is my crusade. Okay. You know that I like to write reviews. Yes. You're very judgmental like that. I've, I've reviewed you nine times. <laughs> Which we determined was a third of the reviews written about you. Right. So I have a lot invested in you. Well, sure. And, you know, those judges that I've actually, you know, had deeper interactions with where we actually get into, you know, why do you want to be a judge? How do you want to improve? Where are you looking to improve? Um, Those judges do deserve reviews. Um, In fact, I'd say it's probably a failing of mine that not, all of the judges that deserve that get that. Um, in, in my case, I think that's something that I can improve on. Um, but it's, said, been, it's been my thing to try to encourage other judges to 
write reviews and try to give them tips on how they can how they can better get on it. You know, like have a notebook at an event so you can take down notes. Mm-hmm. And it's been working. I, I think it's been working. Like one of the potential guests we were talking about having on, CJ Schrader from Atlanta, has recently written quite a few reviews from his local tournaments in Atlanta and has been encouraging his judges at the events to write reviews. And he was telling me about one today. Um, I don't have his name up here anymore. Where's, oh, maybe I do. He's telling me about an L0 of his at a tournament who has written three reviews. Here it is. Nick Zittermer. An L0 that he hopes to certify in the near future. Yeah, Nick's actually went a listener to JudgeCast here. He, he, um, I actually can take some credit for getting him in touch with CJ when he just recently moved. Um, yeah, that's... <sighs> well, then I love it when a plan comes together. Absolutely. Yeah, this whole thing comes together very well. I saw that movie on the plane back from Nagoya, the A-Team. <laughs> I saw, and I saw it in business class, international business class, oh, with shit. those with those bucket seats that become fully reclined beds. Oh, must be nice. <laughs> it's all paying off. It was all worth it. And someday, you too, either Sean or brave listeners can be a world-traveling judge and be in your fully reclining seat in international business class. It's worth noting that most judges do not turn into George Clooney once they hit level three, um, it, like it you all, have. It all begins somewhere. You have to have a dream. That's true. That's true. I mean, somebody will get there. Somebody will, you know... Just just like all you. these judges for... for PT Philadelphia, who were accepted. Like a lot of these names, I think this is going to be their first pro tour. Some of them their second, but they all have big dreams. And I'm really excited by many of these names on this staff list. Mm -hmm. They're going to do great things at this event, and I think this event is truly going to usher in this, this new American generation of judges that we've been seeing growing for the past couple years. Well, we hope so. I mean, this is this is going to be my third pro tour on staff. Um, San Diego and then Worlds last year and then this. Um, yeah. This is going to be a blast. This is really going to be a good time. So, looking forward to it. Of course, hopefully we'll have a couple more episodes between now and then. <laughs> um, yes. So, I've got three hours of material to edit now. Maybe it'll have to be two episodes. Yes. Yes, perhaps. One just devoted to listener questions and me screwing them up, and another one devoted to actual content. We'll see. And and screwing that up. Yes. (laughs) And look at this. We didn't even get to M12, which is just around the corner. There's a bunch of cards on the Wizards of the Coast um, site 
in their image gallery. Yep. Bloodthirst is back. And much more flavor appropriately, it's on a bunch of vampires. Mm -hmm. There's a new card that may cause headaches, Turn to Frog. Yes, power and toughness setting abilities. Yes, let's put those at common. Uh, no, it's uncommon. Okay. The target, ca target creature loses all abilities and becomes a 1-1 blue frog until end of turn. Well, better than... Flavor better than text. Diminish. Flavor text. Ribbit. Ribbit. And a picture of a frog in, like, a suit of armor. Like, the, the person became a frog and now he's climbing out of the suit of armor. Awesome card. Like, it'll cause us nightmares as judges, I'm sure. But just a great, flavorful card. Yes. I think it goes straight into the Judge Breaker deck, um, the EDH deck. Which, incidentally, I don't think that got any cards in the Commander sets. Well, why don't you put in uh, this Ricky of Two Reflections? Well, because it's red, and that messes with the colors. But I'll see. This is a blue, black, and white that I've got it right now. Mm. But I'll, I'll figure something out. All right. Well. Cue and sequence. Yes. For all of us here, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to us. We'll hopefully hear from you. You can send your questions, comments, concerns, hate mail to Judgecast. What you thought of Green Lantern in the movie? Uh, I will forward those to you, Ricky. Okay. So you can send those to Judgecast at gmail.com. Um, we will be very happy to answer your questions, hopefully promptly. Promptly. Wow. We are, we are also on the Book of Faces. Yes. We're on the Facebook. We do the We do the online thing. Are we also on the Twitters? Um, I personally am on the Twitters. You are on the Twitters. Um, I don't know if Jose is. Um, so, yeah, you can find us on Twitter. Not very active. Ricky's more active because he answers Brian Kibler's questions and somehow gets billions of followers that way. That was awesome. Yeah. I must have gotten, like... Maybe like a dozen or more followers just because I answered Brian Kibler's question and he retweeted it or something. Right. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us. We're happy you did, and we'll hopefully uh, catch you next time. From all of us here at JudgeCast, this is Sean Kedonese. I keep it fair. And Jose Boveda, I keep it real. Thanks for listening. Like I'm in space. This is the sound of me going. Blah!